0: We're in control of our own lives, and we can make different choices. And if the things in our life are not bringing us joy and happiness, if our career that we've devoted all of our lives to isn't bringing us joy, we can change them. We have our own power, and we can make a change, and it takes courage. But it's in everyone's best interest for us to take care of ourselves
1: Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast. Feel better, live more. Today's guest is someone who I feel very fortunate to have spoken to. He's regarded as one of the all-time music greats. Time Magazine has called him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He is none other than the legendary record producer. Mr. Rick Rubin. Now, whether you know the name Rick Rubin or not, it is almost certain that music he has been involved with making has made its way into your life at various points. He's regarded as one of the most celebrated record producers of all time. He's worked with a huge variety of different artists in very different genres. Tom Petty, Beastie Boys, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Adele, Johnny Cash, Jay-Z, Neil Young, to name just a few. But I think that one of the main reasons that Rick has reached an almost mythical status across the world is because of his zen-like manner and his artistic approach to life. Now, I actually recorded this conversation all the way back in September 2022, when Rick was in the UK, I was fortunate enough to have been sent an early copy of his brand new book, The Creative Act, which I have to say is truly sublime. Now, in the book, Rick says that we're all artists, and he defines art as whatever our curated output in life is. And I can assure you the content in this episode is relevant for you, whether you are interested in music or not. In our conversation, we talk about how his artistic life philosophy applies to health. He shares his own path to wellness, how changing his diet, living in harmony with his circadian rhythms, and seeing a nutritionist helped him lose over one third of his body weight and gave him his vitality back. We also touch on the similarities between creating beautiful records and creating optimal health. Rick also shares how suffering from depression has actually left him more grounded and empathetic, and why he is such a big fan of saunas and cold water therapy, something of course I covered in detail on my recent podcast with Dr. Susanna Soberg. Just like in Rick's brand new book, there are all sorts of thought tangents to follow in our conversation, and I think what you will hear and take away will hugely depend on what you need to hear in your life right now. We talk about the value of deadlines, the beauty of imperfection and whether it's okay or not to be motivated by success. We also touch on authenticity, values and his firm view that the audience should come last in any creative act. This really was a special conversation full of timeless wisdom from a remarkable man. If you'd have told the teenage Rongan, that he'd one day be sitting down for an in-depth conversation with Rick Rubin about why medicine is more art than science, I don't think he would have believed you. And yet, this is what you are about to hear. So strap yourself in, get yourself ready, and enjoy. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder that you can now listen to each episode of my podcast without any sponsor reads at all. It's only 3 99 per month, which I think is incredible value, under £1 per week. And it's a wonderful way to support the show and all the behind-the-scenes work that goes on to bringing you these powerful conversations. You can also get a 16% discount, 12 months for the price of 10, which works out at 39 99 if you pay upfront for the whole year. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear this podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad free episodes. And now, my conversation with Rick Rubin. I read a lot of books, uh, maybe two or three a week uh, just to Prepare for this show, basically. I think it's very rare that I picked up a book that has resonated with me, I would say, on a deep visceral level, as quickly as yours has. I think it's maybe the time in my life, the way I'm experiencing it, what I'm looking for at the moment. But what really strikes me as interesting is on the surface, it kind of seems as though it's a book about art, but actually it seems more to me about being a book about how to live. Yes, (laughs) I would agree. And then as I think about the content, it sort of comes up for me that Art, certainly the way you describe art in the book, art is a metaphor for our lives. How do you define art?
0: Hmm. I'll say it's our curated output. So we can live in a way where we're living in an artful way, where we're uh, engaged and paying attention and um, making each choice count we can live in a almost like sleepwalking through the day, which many many of us do. Many of us do just go along. Yeah. just re- you know repeat yesterday again. Um, and I suppose the principal argument of the book, although it didn't set out to be this way, <laughs> is that um, is that the way we choose to live in the world, Impacts our ability to um, to make more beautiful things. It's 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 um, it's less about the making and more the being, and through the being, the making is a um, it's like a reverberation of it. It's not it's not the it's not the primary yeah. I didn't know that before starting the book, honestly. It, it came through the process of trying to understand how, uh, m- how decisions um, have been made over the course of my life that yielded good results creatively. Um, and it, it revealed itself through the process of the book.
1: You have been involved with the curating of many music albums over the course of your career, some of the most famous albums on the planet. What was it like working on a book compared to working on music?
0: Um, felt, felt very much out of my depth uh, with music. I've done it long enough where... Um, I have a sense. I, I want to say I have a sense of how it works, even though it's still this magic process that I, that we have no control over. But because of you know thirty five or forty years of doing it, uh, it's not a total unknown. Whereas the book was much more of an unknown stepping into it, and I've never put out anything with my name on the front of it before. I'm always the you know I'm essentially an invisible coach. Sometimes people know about my involvement, but I'm a behind the scenes uh, participant yeah. in the projects that I am in. And this is the first time that it's actually me and I'm the person talking about it. Usually the works that I work on, I rarely talk about them because the person whose name's on the front of the record talks about them. So it's been an interesting, different experience and, um, and, and finding words to explain something that I don't know can be explained and that I don't I don't fully understand, is difficult.
1: Yeah, that that's where I think
0: It's very evasive. You know, it's like what, yeah. what I, I'm I'm describing smoke, and it's hard to describe smoke.
1: <laughs> I think that's where the magic for me in this book is. You, I guess, you're writing about an experience. You're writing about the way. You have experienced art the way you see art through your lens. You you have possibly the best opening to any book ever. Nothing in this book is known to be true. It's a reflection on what I've noticed, not facts so much as thoughts. I love, love, love it (laughs) so, so much. And I think one of the reasons I like that opening so much is you know, I've been a practicing medical doctor for 21 years now as we're having this conversation, Rick. And the more patients I see, the more people I'm able to help, the more I realize I don't actually know that much. And some of the best clinicians and doctors I've met also share the same view. Like, you know, the more I know, the more I realize I just don't know. And I'm always open to be I'm always open to being surprised by something a patient tells me or something a patient experiences. And actually, I think there are so many similarities between art, the way you describe it in your book, and medicine, the way I like to practice it, which is, I think, what is drawing me to it so much.:
0: That's beautiful. I didn't know that, and that's um, that really lands with me in a great, in a great way. I hope there are more people in the medical field who have th- have that feeling.
1: You used the term invisible coach before. Yeah. Which I think is a really beautiful way of thinking about certainly what I've read about you. I've consumed as a fan many of the albums you've been involved with. Some of them have played huge parts of my youth growing up at various times. And I was thinking, well, how come Rick can do hip hop and rock and metal and whatever genre you are helping that artist to be themselves. Yes. Now, how do you help an artist to be themselves if the artist themselves doesn't know who they really are? Sometimes they,
0: they, uh, they often don't know who they are. And they often tell you who they are without knowing they're telling you who they are. Okay. So through through really through conversation, um, I I imagine very similar to do you do you spend when you when you get a new patient, do you spend time talking to them? Absolutely. Okay. And I imagine they tell you things that uh, light up for you as okay, I know what's going on here. Yeah. Yet when they're telling it to you, they have no idea. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. If I, if you really listen, people tell you what they need, what they want, what their dreams are, and they'll tell you, "I don't know what I want. I don't know what my dreams are. I don't know who I am." And then they tell you exactly, "This is who I am. This is what my dreams are." But it, but they're, um it's almost like sometimes we're too close. We're too close to be able to see ourselves very difficult to see ourselves
1: it's funny just a few hours ago i had a conversation with a chap called bruce lipton mm-hmm. who wrote the book the biology of belief mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful conversation and bruce talks about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind and how 95 percent of our lives are driven by our subconscious patterns but what really connects with what you were just saying there is we were talking about how we can see those patterns in other people very clearly. You yes. can see in our partner, yes, in our children, in our friends, you're just like your mom, you're just yes. like your dad, but it's not so easy to see it ourselves, is it?
0: No, no, it's too close. And same same goes in, in working on things. It's um, when we're creating something, we we can get into it to a point of tunnel vision to where through the singular focus of working on it, we lose perspective on what it actually is. Um, so it's something that that's helped that artist an artist who writes their own material might find helpful to have someone like me to bounce it off of. Th- they, they might be too close to it to truly see what it is.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and, and it's helpful to have someone say, when i when I read these lyrics, this makes me feel this is that what you're is that and sometimes they'll say no not at all not at all not, not only no not at all but if that's what you got from it, I have to change it yeah and other times it'll be yes, that's exactly what it means that's what I want it to be and sometimes it's no, that's not what it means, but it doesn't but that's fine too you know yeah. it's it, it really each case depends on um there's no right or wrong in any in any of these art decisions um it's just helpful to have a an outside source mirroring
1: back what's going on and it either resonates or not did you have an invisible coach to help you with your work in this book because it sounds like that's what you offer to other people because as you just beautifully said, we we can get too close to the work. Yeah. Um, So did you have people around you to help you maintain that perspective and distance?
0: Absolutely. I had people helping along the way in in different capacities. Um, Ultimately, at the end of the project, Scott, who's the editor at Penguin Press in New York, was really helpful in the final touches of what worked and what didn't. Um, But all through the process... I started working with one writer, and then working with another. I, I ended up working with many people over the course of the seven years of working on the book, and it went through lots of um, changes and iterations on the way to get where where it is. But it it really helps to have have. Uh, people who know more than you do about the thing that you're working on, help? Has that been your experience with books? How has how's, how's it worked?
1: Yeah, um, 100%. Like initially, like I've written five books now, okay? Wow. And the funny thing is, well, a couple of things come up for me as I say that. If you'd asked me seven years ago, mm-hmm. do you have a book in you? I might have said, yeah, I think I've got one. I think I've got one book in me. Yes. And what I've learned through this process of writing a book a year for the past five years. I can't imagine that. <laughs> well, you say that, but you've got I guess you've yeah. done that in your field in music, right? You've yes. probably helped. So it's, I guess, whenever it's in a different field, we we see it differently. Yes. But and I want to talk about deadlines and all kinds of things because it all sort of plays in. Um but I've I've come to the belief that humans are infinitely creative. Yes. And that when I've finished one book and I've it's gone off to print and I've done a round of interviews on it, I feel like I've I've solidified those thoughts, yes. I've shared them in the world, and then I've emptied the space in my brain for Next. new ideas to come in. And then yes. I'm suddenly seeing new ideas Fantastic. everywhere. But if you'd asked me a few years ago, I'd said, no, I can't. I've just got one. I've, I've got nothing else to share. But in terms of your question, Rick, one of the things I've learned, I remember the first time I sent an edit into Penguin. I thought, yeah, I'm happy with this. And I came back with all these comments, um, not clear, this, there. And initially I think I found it hard. Mm. And that's probably an ego thing. Mm. And what I've learned over the last few years is that, you know, these edits are great. They're absolutely fantastic. You don't have to agree with them all, but don't be attached to your idea too much. Just listen to what people have to say. Then really tune in and go, actually, do you agree? Is it helpful? So I've had a I've had a love hate relationship with feedback. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's in a good place now. But I think the problems I initially faced, if I'm honest, and I do have a tendency to be a bit self critical, mm-hmm. but I think they were to do with ego. What is it like for you when you receive comments about some of the work that you've worked on or some of the words that you've written?
0: Um, I'm open to hearing them. And um, it, it, in, in every case, it seemed to lead to it getting better.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Because even if you don't necessarily agree, yeah, even the thought process and going, why don't I agree? Well, oh yeah, but actually... There's an element of truth there which resonates, so mm-hmm. i and, and there's a big theme in the book is you talk about art being collaborative mm-hmm. but you must have come across ego, I imagine in your career. Have you come across ego, and how have you managed it
0: um, absolutely I think part of the secret of collaborating with someone who's uh has an inflated ego which is comes along with the territory of you know if you go on stage in front of 20,000 people screaming for you every day yeah you couldn't that can fill you up <laughs> um i think a lot of uh having critical serious critical conversations has to do with taking the person out of it and um we talk about it in the book the the more the comments or the more specific and um, external they are. So we're talking about a song. If I say your words aren't good enough, that's really a personal affront. Yeah. But if we have the lyrics out here, we're looking at the lyrics together. And the idea is together, we're gonna look at this and see, is there anything that either of us can see that can make this better? it's different. It's yeah. like we move it and, and we get very specific and it's not your lyrics. It's these lyrics, you know, that we have these lyrics here Um, or, or whatever it is, That the more that it's outside of us. If someone tells you an idea and you say, I don't like that idea, that's personal. That's personal. Yeah. But if someone makes a model of something and you say, well, I like this, but I don't like this you're 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 talking about a model you're not talking about the person and by the way none of it's personal that's that's the important part yeah. is, is making it clear we're working together for the best thing to occur and none of it's personal we're on the same team and we're working together on behalf of this
1: outside object yeah that same principle applies in relationships as as well as making art doesn't it if it's not personal if it's just about the thought or um the thing that you're discussing and you can make it Mm non-personal it's going to have a much more productive outcome
0: even with ourselves you know how we how we speak to ourselves yeah i remember when i um i was sedentary most of my life and i weighed a hundred pounds more than i do now And when I first um, met this uh, group of athletes who invited me to train with them, which was radical, I'd lost a bunch of weight and they invited me to train with them. Um, I remember they showed me an exercise and I said, I can't do that. And they say, no, never say you can't do it. Say, I haven't done it yet. I haven't done it yet. And that's true with everything. It's like, there's nothing that you can't do. You may not have done it yet. We don't know if you can do it or not until you really practice And then you find out if you can do it or not, or how well you can do
2: it. Yeah.
1: I wanna talk later on in this conversation about your physical transformation, because I I think it's incredibly fascinating. Uh, There's so many different strands and elements to it. Mm -hmm. The way we talk to ourselves, which you've just hinted at there, there, there was a bit in the book where you were talking about feeling insecure Um, maybe doubting yourself versus doubting the the work. Yeah, which I thought was a a beautiful distinction. And then then you wrote this gorgeous bit, which is basically insecurity is only a hindrance when it stops you sharing what's in your heart. Wow,
0: that's beautiful. It's funny, I, I told you, I don't really know what's in the book because over seven years, all the information came out but it's not, it's even when I was working on it, it's not things that I necessarily know.
1: Yeah, it is beautiful and beautiful. It's one of those phrases I've underlined. I've written it in my notebook because I feel at this moment in my life, Rick, I think about that a lot. I think about art, I think about the expression of ideas. And once you start trying to, do something for an outcome. Yes. I think I've experienced in the past that that's where the problems start to rise. You start to fracture the core of who you are. And I think you can be successful by a societal metric of success, but in the process, a part of you starts to wither inside. Yes. Uh, So I I think that is so, so powerful. And as I research you, Rick, that one of the big ideas that comes up is that you talk about how you can't make art if you're thinking about the outcome or you're thinking about business or you're thinking about how many copies it's going to sell or what are the audience going to think Have you always had that perspective on art? Or is that something you've developed through experience?
0: I've always had it. And um, I think it's because it started as a hobby. And I never, uh, in a way, I never took it seriously. In one way, I took it more serious than anything else in terms of the making of the art. But I never took it seriously in terms of it being a commercial thing ever, at any point. From the beginning, it was always you know the hope was that it would sell enough to be able to make another one that's all it ever was it was you know very um meager expectations i always thought i'd have a real job and then i would make music because that's what i love to do and i thought i would well i have a job and that would support my music habit I, I never understood that it could be i didn't even know it could be a
1: job do you consider it a real job now
0: Yes and no. I mean, it, I, it has worked out that I haven't had to do anything else. So I guess, yeah. and, I, and I have an incredibly beautiful life. Um, and I suppose, based on the fact that I have a schedule and I'm obligated to show up, so I have commitments, it is a job.
2: Yeah.
0: That said, when I'm there, there's nothing more fun than seeing something appear that wasn't there before,
2: yeah.
0: and um, the the wonder of it. Because again, I, I don't feel in control of the process. Uh, I don't think anyone has control of the process. I think there's truly magic going on. We can set the stage to best support it to happen, yeah. but we can't make it happen. And um, it's it's uh, it's it's thrilling when it does and and i and i also you know one of the things i say in the book is the audience comes last and the audience comes last not because i don't care about them or i don't like the audience in in service to the audience they have to come last yeah. the i the thing that the audience wants is the best thing they can get if we're if we're trying to make it for them it won't be the best thing it can get it'll water it down it'll un, the process of making something for someone else undermines
1: it. This is something I've learned through doing this podcast, actually. And I mean, there's so much that I've learned in the last four and a half, nearly five years of putting this show out. But one of the things I've deeply, deeply learned is that I will choose every guest and I would choose it based on my curiosity. And I remember talking to my team about this a few months ago. I said, look, people are wanting this, people are wanting that, people want this guest. And I take that very seriously. It's not that I'm disregarding that, mm-hmm. but if I'm gonna be truly authentic and true to myself and therefore true to them, I've learned that actually, no wrong, And you have to almost selfishly choose the guests that excite you, that awaken something inside of you that you passionately want to sit there for two hours with and go deep with. Because otherwise the audience will will hear it. If you've just rolled it out, you've got the right guest, you've said the right things. And I remember saying on a podcast a few years ago when I was the guest on someone else's show, and it just came out of me. I said, although I'm a medical doctor and people consider this a health podcast in many ways, which I think is very limiting anyway, Mm -hmm. um, my podcast is not an information delivery system. It's about authenticity. If I can connect with my guests, that's all I'm looking for is a deep connection and any information, any helpful information will kind of spit out as a side effect of that connection. Yes, And I don't think I recognize that when i started podcasting but the more i've uh, worked on and hopefully got better at the skill of it i passionately believe that that's the case it sounds right it sounds right and um and it's been the case that people like what you're doing so it's a good sign do you always know in the moment when you're in a studio with a band of solo artists and something magical is happening Do you always know in the moments?
0: Not always. Yeah. No, not always. Just had an interesting experience, tell you about it. Um, Just before coming to Europe, I was in uh, Malibu for a few weeks and I made a new album with Neil Neil Young, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. And it was unlike any experience I've ever had before in the recording studio. And I've had a lot of experiences in the recording studio, but this was really unusual. And um, I don't know how much you know about Crazy Horse, but Neil has played with Crazy Horse for 50 years. Yeah. The band the band members are all turning 80 next year. Wow. But Neil is not, uh, I think Neil will be, I think Neil's 76 or 77, I'm not sure. Um, but the band members all turn 80. And they're not um, like studio musicians. They're not like crack musicians. They have a sound that's their sound and it's couldn't be more authentic. It's they they when they play it sounds like them. Yeah. Um but in terms of like learning the material, it doesn't just happen instantaneously. Like studio musicians barely even need to hear it and they can play it and yeah. it's perfect. That that's not the case with with Crazy Horse. And we played through songs for the first week, and I will say it was rough. Uh rough to the point of not only did we not get the recordings that that um, were the the basis of a great album, but it was a question of whether they would ever be able to play the songs. That's how, wow. how how far off it seemed. and um and we so the first week is a slow week, and but they play through all the songs, as I say, poorly, but we but we get through the week. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe next week. Now that they've played them one time, when we come back, it's going to be better the next time. And uh, and Neil suggests what song to start with on the next Monday. We're back, fresh, new week, and um, and the drummer Ralph said, "Well, we already played that one," and uh, and and it was a remarkable moment because um, they did play it, but it was. Uh, in a in a in a very um, unclear form yeah and then we spent the next week playing the songs again and um most of them did not get better in some cases they got worse and it was again fascinating. And then Neil suggested, you know let's listen back to the songs from that first week, which in the moment seemed, nowhere near close. And we listened through, and then it's like, well, this moment is really good. And if this part didn't have this mistake, we don't know, like the distract, the mistake is a distract, distracts us to think it's no good, but it's really this mistake. Let's repair the mistake. And we kind of went through it and did not much and then listen back and say like, hmm it's much better than we thought <laughs> and and now the album the album's done i think it's beautiful i love it right. I, I really love it and neil loves it and knows it's special and um and i think pretty much every one of the tracks was recorded in that first week when at the moment it seemed like i don't know if they'll ever be able to play these yeah. it, it's unbelievable
1: it's incredible to hear that, especially with such an experienced producer, an experienced yeah. band. Yeah. Um, I wonder what that is. Is it a bit like, I'm sure you went through this through the writing process when you've written a chapter and yeah, you're not sure. I don't know. And then when you read a few paragraphs, oh, I'm not sure I'm getting my idea out there the way I wanted to. Is it clear enough? And then mm-hmm. you just remove one sentence or... Yeah. You just remove one from this paragraph, one from that paragraph, and then oh, now it's singing, now it's humming, now yeah. it's purring beautifully. Yes. Is it a bit like that? I guess.
0: Absolutely. You can yeah. Sometimes removing the distractions, it falls into place. And and I can also say the opposite is true in the studio where we'll be working and trudging along and it seems mediocre and then all of a sudden it gets good and everyone looks at each other like something's happening, yeah. you know, and we, you feel it in the moment that that's actually more common. Yeah. Feeling it in the moment and recognizing something special is happening. Um, but this was a really interesting case because it was the furthest extreme in the opposite direction that I've ever experienced.
1: Yeah. And it, what's interesting for me, uh, as someone hearing that story is you're constantly being surprised. All your years of experience and mm-hmm. knowledge, mm-hmm. and then even, even you are getting surprised all, all the time, uh, uh, daily. I'm surprised daily. Yeah, and there's a, there's another quote I was going to talk to you about, which um, I only really brought up when you were chatting about writing the book. Because you said I think you were talking about essentially it being out of your comfort zone. It was unusual for you to be writing yourself, putting your name on the front, and, and again, I, I maybe because I just started writing book six at the moment. Um, but I love this beware of the assumption that the way you work is the best way simply because it's the way you've you've done done it it before. before yeah beautiful yeah just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Athletic Greens who are sponsoring today's show Now, you're going to hear shortly in this conversation how Rick improving his nutrition was a key part of him getting his vitality and energy back. And I've seen this over and over again. When people really pay attention to their diet and nutrition, all kinds of improvements start to happen for both physical health and mental well-being. Now, I want to be really clear. In an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from over two decades of seeing patients that a lot of people struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that they actually want to get. There's all kinds of reasons. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress. Whatever it might be, ultimately means that many people end up being deficient in key nutrients. That's why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. Not only is it tasty, it's also jam-packed with nutrients. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more, all in one convenient daily serving. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system, something that is critical, especially at this time of year. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of my show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a special offer where they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Vitamin D is a crucial ingredient for our immune system and many of us have sub-optimal levels in the winter. You can check out this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Vivo Barefoot are also sponsoring today's show. Now, I am a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot Shoes and have been wearing them now for over 10 years, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my life, that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. You see, I've seen so many benefits when people start wearing minimalist shoes like Vivo's. Improvements in things like back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis as well as generally an increased enjoyment of movement. Because when you walk around in minimalist shoes like Vivos, you automatically become more mindful of the experience as you feel more connected to the ground beneath your feet. And contrary to what you might initially think, most people find Vivos really, really comfortable. In fact, many people who try them tell me they would never go back to wearing cushioned shoes. If you have never tried them before, maybe 2023 will be the year when you finally decide to give them a go. It is completely risk free to do so because they offer a 100 day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can just send them back for a full refund. And honestly, they are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I will get for my children. If you go to vivobarefoot.com, forward slash live more, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply. To get your 15% off codes, all you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more.
0: Yeah, there is no right way. And um, sometimes... When we do something and find success in the way we've done it, we think that's the way it works. Yeah. But it's rarely the only way. And that, and it could quickly become a limiting belief uh, if you start making things that all start seeming very similar. Yeah. So opening it up to trying a completely different way, using a different palette, um, collaborating with different people. Um, so in you know, so many different ways in being open to if you're a rock band, maybe the acoustic version is interesting. You know, we don't, it, yeah. if you, if you're used to playing loud, you don't think the quiet version could be good, but you never know. It's like, let's, let's turn over all the stones. Let's see what's possible.
1: There's another similarity here between art and medicine and well, I guess my view on medicine more and more is that for most of the cases I see, helping a patient to get better, whatever that means, yes. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's more art than science. Yes, I understand for a, a very acute case, yes. um, or you know, you, you need a, a heart operation. Like I know you've spoken about publicly before, yes. you need a super skilled surgeon who can yes. go in and do what's necessary. I understand that. But for the bulk of things that people are complaining of these days, I think the job of a healthcare professional or a medical doctor like myself is to be like you are to your artist an invisible coach, right? Reflect back to them, help them realize that they've got more autonomy, more control, more influence on their health than they think. Yes, But also realize that like what you just said, that there is no one right way. Yes. Like I can see ten different people with symptoms of in inverted commas depression, mm-hmm. and there may well be ten different ways yes to help those ten people. And actually, the same person you may be able to get them better in five different ways yes. So I, it's funny, you know, I, the the book, it ain't just about making records. It's not about writing books. It's also about seeing patience. it's about i think you say somewhere that it's about you know art and creativity is actually about the way we experience life and that's why i think it is so magical because these are little bits of timeless wisdom that in many ways you've written through the lens of music but actually are applicable to everything i hope so i i, I
0: hoped to write the book in an open enough way where and i think the nature of the principles that that are discussed are not about music yeah and while i view them as being about art it is true we can live in an artful way and it'll be better than if we don't regardless of what it is
1: we're doing are we all artists
0: we all we all are artists the question is is are we a better artist today than we were yesterday? And are we doing everything we can to be the best artist we can be tomorrow? And it's, it's, uh, we're all art, we may not all be Da Vinci, but are, are we better than we were? And can we continue to become better and better and better? And it's an ongoing iterative process
1: over the course of our lives. Creativity, of course, is a, huge part of art and I was thinking about this this morning when sort of reflecting that we were going to have a, a conversation today I was thinking well if if life is art and creativity is an expression or something we have to tap into to express our art then maybe the way we are with our children the way we are with our partners that's creativity as well that's absolutely yeah Absolutely.
0: all of it and how we are with ourselves. again, it's all it's all of those things. Um, anything we do to if we're dealing with some uh, some issue, and if we decide to take a pill for that issue or decide to make a creative change in our life that allows the issue to resolve itself that's a creative choice. And um, it seems like in terms of the sustainability of being able to do these things for a long time, maybe the taking the pill version isn't the best way to solve our issues. How often, uh, as a physician, how often do you recommend a lifestyle change versus a pharmaceutical?
2: I mean,
1: Pretty much 99% of the time, if not 100% these days. This is what my entire career and certainly with patients, but also my public facing career. This is what it's all about is to Mm -hmm. help people realize actually the majority of what we're struggling with today is a result of our collective modern lifestyles. And I say that very carefully. I'm not blaming people. yes. It's our collective modern lifestyles. Yes, and actually, I believe this book. Now I think about it, you can make you can make a case that this is a health book, mm-hmm. because if art is an authentic expression of who we are, and we're going to do that irrespective of the outcome, irrespective of what people are going to think, if it's truly about authenticity that I can categorically say with certainty that people living inauthentic lives results in so many of the problems that I see. Simple one, like if you are not living uh, in alignment with your values, with that disconnect in who you are, with that fracture that's opened up in the core of who you are, you will put things in that void, sugar, Alcohol, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. it's often trying to fill the void of inauthenticity. Mm-hmm. So the book I feel is is helping people live a meaningful, more authentic life with some simple but very very timeless and apt truths. So I would have thought if people absorb them and live their lives by them, that it will also help improve their health.
0: Absolutely, I'll tell you a story. I, I um. I used to live in um, artist hours, musical artist hours. So I would sleep until typically noon, although it could be as late as three. And then I would not leave the house until the sunset. And then I would work in the studio all night long and usually drive home as the sun was rising. That was my normal schedule for years and years and years. Even back to high school, I missed the first three classes of high school um for the last 2 years of high school pretty consistently because i was already training this late night night owl schedule which just felt it felt natural to me and it was it seemed the way other people who were interested in the things that i were interested in did the same and um i worked with a performance coach named Phil Maffetone who and this was um say 20 years ago. Yeah. And the first thing he said is and I used to sleep with these blackout blinds. And he said the, f- the first thing I want you to do is as soon as you wake up, open the blinds and go outside, preferably naked, but at least as much of your body in the sun as possible the minute you wake up. Yeah. And he had me start doing that and at this time I was waking up at noon and I started doing that and and very quickly I started waking up earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. It happened completely naturally. Um, when he suggested it to me, what I heard, so he said, "I want you to go outside in the sun." The minute you wake up, what I heard was, "I want you to jump off a cliff." That's how. That's how radical and terrifying it wow. sounded compared to how my experience of what what uh, what safe and comfort in life was was not that. And um, that was the first, like getting in tune with the planet. I didn't, it was something I didn't know about. I didn't know about that. So in terms of being your authentic self, also being your your authentic animal on this planet, there are certain um, f- n- f- uh, his, historically uh on a dna level yeah there are things that our bodies like and in our modern world we don't take those into consideration
1: evolutionary so, truths i guess absolutely yeah. and
0: now i do as much as i can to live by the um you know the way people lived a thousand years ago as possible or ten thousand or a hundred thousand
2: yeah
1: i'm familiar with phil mafferson's work um think it's great i hope to get in touch with phil at some point and have him on the show i'd love to talk to him yes um you have in a previous interview described your weight loss journey Mm -hmm. as creative i don't know if you recall that or not or i I can't remember the context i
0: don't. but that's interesting
1: yeah i found that really interesting so i thought wow i'm trying to broaden the lens on art and creativity through you know really reading your book as it's been it's for it's it's not forced me, it's encouraged me down a path of introspection about what does art really mean. Yes. And I found it's so interesting hearing you Rick say that. I thought weight loss is creative. Do you have any idea what you might have meant by that?
0: I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure. I can tell you about the experience though. It was an interesting yeah, please um, do. I was overweight my entire life. My mom was obese and towards the end of her life was in a wheelchair due to her obesity. i have been dieting and uh, I went to Weight Watchers with my mom when I was a kid. I tried every fad diet along the way and nothing seemed to change. And, um, and then finally, I was at at this breaking point when I when I reached out to Phil, I read a book by a guy named Stu Middleman who ran a thousand miles in eleven days and I was thinking I can't, you know, walk to the end of the block yeah. and it's and and another human being can run a thousand miles in eleven days. so there's I have bad information. <laughs> you know, like I'm doing something wrong. and um and in, in Stu's book, he talked about Phil and that's how he was able to do this crazy thing and, okay i have to meet this guy phil he know he has the answers <laughs> and i met with phil and i met with phil several times then he eventually ended up moving into my house and we lived together for two years and i did everything he said and my health improved radically and my um my vitality turned back on from mm-hmm. essentially being off from a life of sedentary um, i was also a vegan for 20 something years which Really uh,
1: created havoc in my body. It was not. It was not right for me. Why were you a vegan? For ethical reasons or for health reasons?
0: Combination. Combination. Um, it started. I gave up originally in college. I gave up. Uh, co- Coca Cola, Pepsi Cola, first. Then gave up. Red meat. And I, I did those things, I would say, thinking that it was health, beliefs about health. Um, and I got down to the point where I, was, uh, I wasn't using any caffeine. I was drinking uh, only water, and I was eating chicken and vegetables at that point in time. And, uh, and then I moved to California, and a friend gave me a book called Diet for a New America, which is a... a a book about veganism essentially. And he said, if you read this book, you're not gonna wanna eat chicken anymore because it talked about the horrors of yeah. industrial meat. And I thought, well, if I give up chicken, I'm gonna die because all I'm eating now is chicken and vegetables. So I can't do that. Um, and I thought at that time, before I read the book, I'm gonna experiment and see how long I can go without eating chicken. And um, and then I ended up not eating chicken again for 20 some odd years and just ended up eating vegetables. and. A lot of uh processed vegan food which was it turns out not very healthy or at least not healthy for me i I can only speak to my experience but my experience was and and i will say most of the vegans i know i knew didn't look very healthy either
1: how how heavy were you at your heaviest
0: um 318 pounds
1: but i don't know what that is in kilograms yeah okay okay 318 pounds and then you start working with phil
0: start working with phil did everything he said my hours changed i got in tune with the planet um i was able to do stairs and walk long distances without um dying was he
1: doing the heart rate (laughs) yes stuff with you he gave you your heart rate yes and said i want you to move your body but not go above this specific heart rate yes
0: low uh Aerobic heart heart yeah. rate zone.
1: He, he has a formula, doesn't he? Like 180 minus your age. Yes. And then you can vary plus it or minus, plus or minus based five, on five certain or 10. things. Yeah, yes. exactly. So but when you were asked to do that, yes. so you can, you know, get walking or going it says but your heart rate can't go above a certain number that he gave you.
0: Well, you want to keep your heart rate at, right at that number, okay. as close as you can get. If you're walking slowly and you're not getting to that number, you're not doing it. You you want to be as close Close to to the target number as possible for as long as you can. So you'd
1: wear a heart rate monitor? Absolutely. And you'd literally be out walking and checking?
0: Either out when, at this point in time, I lived in Los Angeles, so out walking is not so easy (laughs) because the hills make it nearly impossible. Um, So I I had a treadmill
1: and I did it on a treadmill
0: at that point in time.
1: So he changes your circadian rhythm by getting you to see natural lights in the morning. Yes, which is in tune with your evolutionary biology and yes. your heritage. Yes,
0: and vitamin D
1: and um,
0: uh, the ultraviolet. I got all the benefits of being in the sun, in addition to getting on the on the um, on the right schedule.
1: Yeah. And did he make changes to your diet?
0: Absolutely. He yeah. cha- he wanted me to eat meat. He wanted me to eat, eat everything um, other than carbs which at that time I wasn't able to do because I was still a vegan. So he had me add fish and eggs as the minimal of what I could do. And and I ate them both. Not I never liked fish. Growing up, I didn't eat fish. And eggs was never something I liked and um and he said regardless of whether you like them or not this is medicine you have take it as medicine think of it as medicine you need animal protein and i had the i added the animal protein i cut all soy i cut nuts i cut i cut i cut a lot of things and um i got much healthier and i did did not lose weight I lost maybe five or 10 pounds over the two years that we worked together.
1: And you stuck to the advice?
0: Absolutely. You... He was with me. And he said at the end of it, he said, "He said 99 out of 100 people who've done what you did, all their weight would fall off. For some reason, it hasn't with you. And then I thought, well, my mom's obese. It's just a genetic thing. This is what it is. Yeah. But at least I'm healthy now. You know, at least, and, and I felt very healthy.
1: I think that's an interesting lesson there. So you radically transform your lifestyle I guess the goal initially was weight loss. It was. So the goal was weight loss. And although you didn't really get or meet your goal, I'm sure you wanted more than five or 10 pounds. Yes, yes, yes. uh, You got all these unexpected benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you remember what they were? It was like energy or- Yeah,
0: yeah, I felt great. I felt great.
1: Better than you felt before.
0: Oh, absolutely. So much better. So much better. So much better in so many ways. And then, so that- so now I'm a healthy, heavy person <laughs> and that went on for years. And then I was suggested to go to see a nutritionist by, I, have, I had a mentor, he just passed away maybe three weeks ago, named Mo Austin, beautiful man. He was, uh, he worked for Frank Sinatra uh-huh. and he signed Jimi Hendrix and he signed the Sex Pistols. And he was a, a really, uh, one of the most beautiful people ever in the music business. And I went out to lunch with him one day and he said, you know, I'm really getting worried about you. I know that you you swim every day and you watch what you eat because I did, but you're really getting big and I'm concerned and I'm going to get the name of a nutritionist. I want you to go to my nutritionist and do whatever he said, whatever he says. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Knowing it's not going to work because again, I've been diligent my whole life in wanting to lose weight and nothing has worked. So I'm assuming nothing will work, but I go along with it because I like Mo and um, I'll'll do anything he asked me to do. and I went to see his guy and he put me on um, egg shit. He had me have seven egg shakes a day and then fish, soup, salad for dinner, but v- very low calorie. So it was it was not so different than th- what Phil was recommending, except the difference was Phil uh, suggests not counting calories. And I can see, I understand the idea of not counting calories. And now I've come to realize, I think not counting calories works once you're at your target weight. Mm -hmm. But to get to your target weight, you may need to count calories.
1: First of all, I'm I'm sorry to hear about your friends and mentor.
0: Yeah. So I I went on a radically reduced calorie diet, I don't know, 13 or 1400 calories a day. And um, and in fourteen months, I lost one hundred and thirty five pounds, which is a, you know a third of my body more more than
1: a third of my body weight. Wow, it's interesting hearing that because whether it's ninety nine percent or a significant uh, majority of people, if they followed what Phil, yes, was saying, would absolutely yes have had. Better health, better vitality, yes. better energy, and they would have lost weight. Yes, because I've used that sort of approach with not everyone, but with many of my patients, yes. and it can work super, super well. Yeah.
0: And Phil said it worked for everyone he's done it with; it's worked. So he was he was baffled.
1: Yeah, and I think the count and calories thing is again. I think your story speaks to you know an idea in your book that. Don't get too attached to one way. There's always another way, you know. Absolutely. You know? And we're all different. And we're all and what, different. And what
0: works for you might not work for someone else. And it's helpful to, you know, so, sometimes we have wisdom imparted by an expert who's telling us what, what, through their experience, is best. Yeah. But it may be what's best for them and not best for you. And we are, not, we are not one size fits all.
1: Yeah. And it goes back to my previous comment, which is as you get more experienced, if you're open-minded and yes. not closed-minded, yes. after seeing tens of thousands of patients, if you remain open-minded, you're like, there are always surprises. Yes. There are always people doing things that you haven't tried before, that, but they're doing and they're getting better. I've always liked to approach it with curiosity and go, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have suggested that, but that's no. working for you. Yeah, and I'd like
0: to know more. I'd love to learn more. Absolutely. That's I that's my way of being in the world. If someone tells me something that doesn't make sense to me, I want to know more. I want to know everything. I don't, I don't uh discount what they're saying, just the opposite.
1: Yeah, I guess it's it's whether you're attached to an identity, whether you're attached to being right, or whether you're, I guess, attached to learning. Yes. Cause for me. I think that's the fundamental difference now, and I feel that's one of the key moves I've made, which is why I think at this stage of my life, you know, in my mid forties, I've I've never felt this happy and content. And I think this is a big part of it, yes. Rick. That it's not about being right anymore. I'm not okay. Fine if I'm wrong about something. Yes. Okay, great. I've I've had the opportunity to learn something. Yes. And I think calories for for many people, I think where this calorie thing comes for years, I think a lot of people try to count calories. And a lot of people have the view that if you focus on the right foods, actually your natural satiety will take care of those calories for you. Mm -hmm. That's certainly been my experience for most people. Mm -hmm. But as you're just sharing, well, actually, for some people, it might well be helpful. Um, And do you still count calories today?
0: No. Well, the other thing that I found about counting calories that was really helpful is it is helpful to know where calories are. For example, when, you know, i I I used to like peanut butter and I switched to almond butter because it was the healthier choice. But the amount of calories in half of a jar of almond butter are quite a lot. So so I'm making, but I'm making a healthy choice. And in my mind, well, it's the healthy one. I can have half a bottle of almond butter because I like it and I'm hungry, so I'll have that. Understanding that the the half of jar of almond butter had more calories than... I meant to eat in in a whole day in addition to all the food yeah. that I eat was helpful to me.
1: Yeah, it's an empowerment piece, isn't it? You can now Absolutely. use that information and Absolutely. now without counts and go, Hey, I want a bit of almond butter, but I better not have half the jar.
0: Yes. And now I rarely will have almond butter just because it's so um <laughs> the trade-off of the yeah. amount of calories for what it is, I might not make that choice.
1: Yeah, and again, it's an empowerment. You're now with that information. Absolutely. You're saying for you, it's not worth the trade off. But Bob down the street. It's up to him. He may go, yeah, that's I I definitely would rather eat less later but have my almond butter. Yes. And um, yeah. Super, super interesting. So you you effectively went on a super low calorie diet.
0: High high protein, no carb, low calorie diet.
1: So with Phil, you had huge improvements in multiple aspects of your health, yes. just not weight loss. Correct. When you saw uh, your your late friend's uh, nutritionist, yes. you got this incredible weight loss. Was there anything else you got with it or was it mainly weight? It,
0: this is an interesting one. At that point in time, I felt like I, I really in that in that case, what he was suggesting, what the nutritionist was suggesting, was suggesting seemed very far out to me. It, it seemed extreme to me, and I felt like by doing what he said, I was, I was, putting my faith in him, and turning turning myself over, I didn't do what I thought was best. Mm -hmm. I did what he thought was best, which was not something I'm good at. Mm. And I found through that, through giving up what I thought was best, that's how I ended up
1: losing weight. So what's the lesson there? Don't always trust yourself.
0: Well, we we can't always trust ourselves, but it's interesting that there are times when, and maybe... It's it's an experiment. You know, it's an experiment that sometimes I'm going to do it the way that doesn't sound right to me yeah. and see what happens. Again, it's all a test. But to but I before I was I would have been closed to that test because that doesn't sound right to me. I'm yeah. not going to do that. This didn't sound right to me, but out of respect for Mo, I'll try it.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because I guess we'd always want people to trust themselves. Mm-hmm. But nothing tends to be true at the extremes, does it? It's mm. kind of like, yeah, sure, trust yourself, trust yourself. But sometimes lean in and trust someone else and see what happens. Yes, It's a bit like that section in, in the book that you've written on rules and how rules are sometimes... Always. Oh, always. <laughs> okay, so tell me about rules. Yeah. Um.
0: I think rules are there to be tested, and when a, when a rule comes, it can it can either be a useful rule, or a, a, a not useful rule, and sometimes we'll adopt a set of rules on purpose, a limitation that that um, to create a specific. Uh, yeah. You may work on a book like every time you work on a book you dis- you have a, a rough idea of what it's going to be about. It's not about everything.
2: Yeah,
0: Not every book is about everything. So you set up an organization yeah. for that book. That's rules. And that's rules that you're adopting for that book. So there's time where having rules makes sense. In general, in the world, rules are there to establish an average behavior. And... I'm not sure that average is anything to aspire to. So sometimes, especially in art, if you want to uh, create something special, often it comes from breaking rules, from going beyond the accepted norm of how it's done. Yeah. I'll I'll tell you, this is an interesting medical story about going beyond the norms of how things are. I I just heard the story recently. Um, I have a friend who's a brilliant brain surgeon, maybe one of the best in the world, and he told me the story of doing a brain surgery where there was a big tumor in a part in the brain. It was a very particularly dangerous operation because the tumor was right next to the part of the brain that allows a person to speak. Yeah. And if the, if the surgery went too far, the person would never speak again. And to do the surgery, the person was anesthetized but had to be awake and had to be speaking the whole time it's the only way to know how far you yeah. can go so the surgeon is doing these tiny slices of taking this tumor away tiny slices tiny slices and the person speaking to him and he knows well i'm getting close to the place i can't go you know i can't go past because then the person will never speak again and he's going and the person's speaking, but the tumor's still there and he's going and he's going and he's going. And then he gets to the part where he's not allowed to go further and the person's still speaking and he does another slice. And the person's still speaking, and he does another slice mm-hmm. and he does another slice and he keeps going. Yeah. And he moved right through where that what the textbook says you can't do. And the person's speaking the whole time and, and he said, it was It was incredible it was an incredible experience and the way we thought the brain works is not the way the brain works. And then I said, well, how much of the, how much of what's taught today in medical school, in the textbook in medical school, textbooks of medical school, how much of that information is accurate and up to date and how much isn't? And he said, maybe half, maybe half of what's being taught right now might be right, and um, at least half is either wrong or obsolete. Yeah, that's
1: incredible. It's incredible. That's incredible. And and that's why it's a folly to 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 cling too tightly to these beliefs or yes. these so-called truths that you've been taught. Yes, we if, don't know. You don't know. No, we don't
0: know. We we know so little. And I, and I think the real um, power we can have is embracing how little we know yeah and to, to live in wonder you know it, it's it's a it's a much more beautiful way you, you you said earlier about giving up being right um when someone says to me you're right it always makes me uncomfortable I don't want to be right I just want to know I just want to know yeah. more do you know what I mean because if I'm right that means someone's wrong I don't want anybody to be wrong I I want us all to just find our way yeah you know it's not a' There's, there's no sense of competition in it. It's like, let's work together to find our way.
1: As someone who's not used to putting their name on the front of work they've been involved with, does it make you uncomfortable in any way when I rave about how wonderful I think your book is? Because many people struggle with praise.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely struggle with praise, but because I put so much work into it, it's exciting for me to know that someone can read it and feel um what i felt when when yeah. working on it. So there's a a sense of satisfaction that it's doing what i hoped it would do, which would be resonate with someone. I did i purposely did want this book for someone to read it and feel it and want to take action. That was in some ways the purpose of the book from the beginning. There was a version of the book about 3 years ago which was beautifully eloquent but when I read it, it didn't. It didn't make me want to make art. It was just. It was more. Um, it it didn't do what I I wanted. I wanted someone to read the book and want to write. Stop reading to go out and make something beautiful.
1: Is there a contradiction in one of the core messages, which is, you cannot make art. Good art, if you're thinking about the outcome, or you're thinking about what people will think. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, and I'm saying this no, as an no, no. inquiry yes, yes, to yes, yes. to explore, not absolutely. to-
0: No, absolutely. Not I with understand. any other intention. I'm with you,
1: I'm with you. Because you just said to me that I really want people to be able to yes. take this, resonate with take action. Yes. So is there a conflict there with those two there ideas? There is,
0: and there is an aspect of this book where it's an instruction manual. yeah. And for an instruction manual to be effective, the information in it wants to land. If it was a book of poetry, less so. Yeah. And I'm hoping it's poetic. You know, It, I it is, it. honestly. Yeah, I, want, I, like, I like that it's poetic, but ultimately mm-hmm. the reason I put the time in for this to exist was in the same way that when I go to the studio with artists, it's to help them be their best selves. And- the idea of the book was to be an outgrowth of that where for the people I don't get to work with in the studio, what's it like being in the studio? What are the things we talk about? Um, What are the things that we get to that ends up in making the things that we make? And that's what the book is. So if it, if it didn't make you want to make something, I would deem it not a success for me.
1: Yeah. There's, Uh, There are so many wonderful sections in the book that are coming to mind for me at the moment, Rick. One of them is about um, make art that moves you. Yes. If it happens to move someone else, okay, great. And if it doesn't, that's okay as well. But first and foremost, make the art that moves you. Yes. I want to etch that into my heart, into my soul, because I... It, there's a, there's this other concept in the book. You talk about the 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 pressure of a loyal audience. Yes. A loyal audience can begin to feel like a prison. Yes. And I feel that's um, it's a really interesting concept. And I actually think every aspect that we've been talking about is relevant to every single person. That loyal audience thing is, you know, the way you expand upon it in the book through the concepts, through the lens of the music industry, you know, if you're a successful artist you've sold loads of copies of your album. There's a whole team of people around you wanting you to repeat the same. This is the formula. Hey, hey, hey mm-hmm. just, just give us that again, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I've experienced uh, a lot of, um, a lot of, in inverted commas, success over the past few years mm-hmm. with this podcast, with my books. And what I love about that sort of idea I I took some real time off over the summer, spent it with my wife and kids. We went away. I was off social media. It was just wonderful. And I've really been reevaluating what it is I want, what is it I'm here to do. And I don't want to play it safe. You don't, I don't want to, you know, you could play it safe. You could only take interviews with people who you know your audience are going to like, and that's the topics that they want. But I think that's a misservice to them, and it's a misservice to myself. Absolutely. Because in the process of doing that, you lose who you are. Yes. And then you end up compensating for that with all kinds of behaviors that ends you up in the doctor's surgery asking for help, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Have you seen artists fall into that trap? Absolutely.
0: It happens all the time. Just the... The expectation, it, it works in many different ways, but the idea that if there's a group of people who are expecting a certain thing from you, and you you no longer feel like that artist, you know, you've you've moved forward. And your concern is that the audience hasn't moved forward, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. You yeah. can continue going through the motions in the old way and thinking that that will please the audience and it may or may not or you can be true to yourself and in that process you'll alienate some of your audience and maybe get new get new fans it's it's the reality of the situation I had that experience with um, the band Lincoln Park mm-hmm. Lincoln Park were a very uh, aggressive, um, I guess they were on the end of the new metal, there was like a new metal phase of music, and they were the last band in this wave of these new metal bands, and like rap rock, new metal. And I had seen that they had grown past it, and it was time to make their next album. And I suggested that they embraced what they loved and to make the most interesting thing for themselves. And they did and it completely divided the audience and it set them up to be able to continue making interesting things going forward. And in some ways it's like their early career and now there's this new career that's much more, uh, there was much more, it moved in more directions and it was more honest It was less formulaic yeah, and it was fine. You know, it worked out fine, but definitely in the moment, I can remember it happened to me when, you know, I loved Radiohead when they put out Kid A. My first instinct was, well, that's not what I want from Radiohead. Yeah, It happens. And now Listening Back is one of my favorite albums that happens. We don't always know.
1: So even as consumers then off arts. Letting go of rigidity and expectation, and being open to the unknown, and open to things—I guess that's an important lesson for us as well. Because you know that as a creator, yes. But that was really powerful. That as a fan of Radiohead, you fell into that trap as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes, again, if we—if
0: you're—if you have expectations, or you see things in a certain context. When that's um, upset, it, it's it's hard to know where you stand. Yeah, And I've grown to really like that feeling. Doesn't mean, always mean, different's not always better. It's often not. That's the other thing. It's like, just because it's different doesn't mean it's better. Yeah. And let's assume that because it's different, it's not worse. We don't know. It's like, it, it has to, you have yeah. to, experience it and see sometimes the shock of the news very exciting and it's like ah yeah but sometimes it's uh
1: it's so fascinating I um I saw this thing on Kurt Cobain a couple of weeks ago on YouTube and but something I didn't know I was a you know when Smiles Like Teen Spirit came out I was what I don't know probably about what was that 91 something like that it's probably 13, 14, 15, you know, really into music, you know, seminal album. Very real, very authentic. And then in this video I saw a couple of weeks ago, they were showing footage of, uh, I think Kurt Cobain saying that, or I think it was Dave Grohl talking about Kurt's, that he wanted Yvonne to be the biggest band in the world. Wow, that's interesting. It was really interesting because I was also at the same time reading your book. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I never would have expected that. That certainly wasn't the, I'm not saying curated image that I got given by the record industry, but this kind of raw, authentic grunge bands. Oh, Kurt Cobain wanted Nirvana to be the biggest band in the world. And I felt a slight disconnect there when I heard that, mm-hmm. especially going back to the idea that you can't make great art if you're thinking about the outcome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if you have any thoughts on that at all. Yeah,
0: what's interesting is with the things that I've worked on, things that I make, I, I, the audience comes last. I want to make the best thing that I can. And I hope a lot of people like it. I I don't make it with them in mind because that's it. I know it won't be as good. Yeah. But when they do, it certainly feels good. I'm not, I'm not, uh, against success at all, at all. And it's, a, it's amazing when it happens. It's when that becomes the primary focus in the making, when you're changing the art for it to be successful. And I don't get the sense, and I don't know this, maybe Kurt Cobain wanted to be the biggest band in the world, but I'd be surprised if he made creative choices yeah. to um, that with
1: that in mind. And that's the key distinction, isn't it?
0: It really is. It's, it's, it's what's the intention in the making. Yeah. Again, I, I'm, I'm, there's there's nothing wrong with wanting and having success. I'm only talking about when you're making something, where does your focus lie for it to be as good as it could be?
1: Because yeah, I imagine that can work both ways. Like I can imagine, and maybe you've worked with bands where actually, better change the art in order for it to be commercially successful. Maybe Mm -hmm. there was pressure from the Mm -hmm. record industry, Mm -hmm. from publicists, from managers, who knows what. Mm -hmm. And maybe in the short term, they thought that was a win. Mm -hmm. But I just feel strongly that medium term, long term, you lose something much more significant than anything you might gain with that commercial success. Absolutely,
0: and each in in that process of whittling away at yourself over time there's there's less of you to put into the next one there's less you know it's like it, you yeah. you really do like you get to a point of who am i if yeah. if that's happened enough times
2: yeah
1: mean i feel rick for for much of my life i've tried to perform and be someone who I am not. Yes. In order to get validation, mm-hmm. and a lot of that has come down to the programs, the the ideas that I took on as a child, um, which was that in order to be loved, or certainly my perception, I should say, because it's it's my perception. Yes. My perception was that I'm loved when I get top marks, when I get straight A's, when I'm number one. Yes. Because. My parents were always driving me to do that, but yes. you know, just to briefly summarise, my parents immigrants to the UK from India, facing a lot of discrimination, a lot of struggle. They just want the best for their child. Absolutely, they they that was their way of showing love. Hey, yes. you be the best you can be. Actually, you're not going to have the problems that we've had. So, same reality, but two versions of that reality, two perceptions, mm-hmm. and so why I feel. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on the art form of podcasting, because you've now written a book, you've been involved with many albums. I know, and I've listened to many of the episodes you did with Broken Record, Uh, wonderful conversations that you've had with artists. So I'm interested to see your view in the podcasting art form. I feel that this podcast, you know, I, I keep getting stopped by people who are listening to the show and telling me beautiful Uh, stories of the impact it's had on them, which is really nice to hear. Absolutely. It's certainly not ego elevating in a way that it would have been 10 years ago because I'm not that person anymore. I don't need that validation. But I think it's helped me more than anyone. Mm -hmm. Like these are the conversations that um, nourish me, that fuel me, that help me understand myself. Yes. And unfortunately, we're not in my studio. You would have met my, uh, my videographer, Gareth, who... It's a mega fan of yours, actually, Rick. Um, but something, Gareth only joined the team maybe two or three years ago when we we brought video into the production process. And Gareth probably spends as much time with me as anyone outside my family because he's in with me for every conversation. He sees me beforehand, he sees me after. So he sees me with all the, the filters off as well. Mm-hmm. And he's been wonderful at helping us work that this idea of performance versus authenticity, this whole idea that he would spot that I was like subtly different when the mic's rolling than when the mic's not rolling. Mm -hmm. And so we've in a variety of ways, just been conscious, aware of, can I show up as the same person same thought process, same intonation in my voice, everything as if the mic isn't there. Mm-hmm. And it's been really quite, um, it's just been a phenomenal experience because performance, I used to think performance was a good thing growing up. You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to now perform on stage. You know, I was in bands for years, Rick. I've been a frontman in bands, a very loud, vivacious oh, frontman. But that was a personality I put on to hide a deep insecurity. I realised, and actually, my my only goal with each conversation is: is it a raw, authentic conversation? Were you as raw and as honest and as unaltered in your tone of voice as you could be? I don't know if you have any comments on that. It, it
0: sounds. That sounds. Um... It sounds good. Like it's. It sounds like I. I want to hear. It's one of the beautiful things about. One that you're not a journalist. One of the things I've noticed is that there's a there's a different conversation that you have with a journalist than you have with a person. And again, not nothing against journalists at all, but the nature of a journalist is different. The way, the way a journalist asks questions is different than having a conversation with someone. And I think the podcasting revolution is about this, the benefit of these long form, essentially unedited heart to heart conversations. And it's something that we very rarely get to hear. It's we, we, in, in, um, in normal media life, we get snippets and sound bites and Often the snippets and sound bites are taken out of context or chosen for some sensational reason. And we don't, we don't really get to know people. And this format is incredible because we're spending hours together having a conversation and there'll be parts that are really interesting and parts that are less interesting and parts that are energetic and parts that are not. And it's real. It's, this is a real conversation. And I think it's, more rooted in reality than like a curated experience of life
1: it's more real when you were having these conversations for the broken record podcast with you know the chili peppers springsteen lenny kravitz i'm halfway through that one which yeah. as a huge lenny fan it's a really eye-opening for me mm. um how do you prepare for those conversations
0: not much yeah uh, not much depends on who the artist is if it's an artist i know i may think about it the morning of the the podcast and make a list of possible questions just in case It doesn't come up in the conversation yeah. like a backup plan. Um, if it's an artist I don't know, I may listen to some music, do a little research. I might even listen to another interview just to get a sense of who they are, so I'm not surprised when I when I'm speaking to them. Um, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. I, I go in pretty unprepared, honestly.
1: That's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think in my head how would that. Be different for when you're about to work with a band or a solo artist on a new album. Yeah. Different art forms. Obviously, in a podcast, you are required to not not necessarily lead a conversation, but um, be on mic. Yes. What, like if you if you if you're working with a band you've never worked with before. Do you go in cold, fresh? Yes, less, less prepared. Well, even less prepared. <laughs> Absolutely, because you don't want what anything to be colored by a previous. Yeah, I don't want to have.
0: I don't want to come in with any baggage whatsoever. I want to listen to what the artist tells me, and I want to um, whatever's interesting to me in the conversation. I'll ask questions to learn what what is helpful for me to know in
1: that moment. Yeah super interesting yeah
0: and i have no uh agenda other than if we're going to make something together that it be as good as it could be whatever it is so i i, I don't um it dep- like if there's an artist who i i know their music well i might have not on, not even uh on purpose there may be in the back of my mind it would be fun to hear them doing this you know in the back of my mind some style of some mm. style of project for them to do but I would never offer that to start with. It would always be a, let me hear what you want to do, or yeah. And then I, I you know, there may be some idea that, a, again, a backup plan. If nothing else works, there might be an idea. But I would never assume that any idea I had would be a, the right idea.
1: <laughs> what kind of process do you need to go through, or or are there set uh, practices that you engage in? I don't know. Artists is rocking up a. Noon, let's say, in the two hours prior to that, do you have to go through an intentional process of clearing out the noise so you are as fresh and as uncolored when you meet them, when you hear their music? Like, I guess I'm thinking you're driving to a studio to meet someone. Yes. And you have the radio playing. So you've got. Other music. That might be... I might do that. You might do that. I might do that. But you're not worried that that would... Um, because we're, we're never the same person, are we? We're not the same person on a Monday as we are on a Tuesday, right? No. So everything you do yes. or everything you've done in your entire life yes. kind of plays into who you are in that moment Absolutely. when you're listening.
0: Absolutely. And so how do you deal with that? Whether it's sunny or raining, whether, you know, yeah. e- everything... It just, it just is. is. Yeah, it just is. And also considering what you just said, that all of our lives play into this meeting, whatever happened in the last 10 minutes isn't more important than everything else. So, do you know what I mean? In the context of a lot has happened for us to get to this
1: moment. And uh, I'm just, you know, thankful to be here. (laughs) We mentioned ego in artists. Um, I guess all of us have got an element of ego that can rear its head at, at various times, depending on what's going on.
0: I would say both ego and insecurity, like both sides yeah. of it are always at play. For sure. And it, you might see someone who demonstrates it through what seems like an egomaniac perspective, yet underneath that is this very insecure person. 100%. So it's, it's always just like a sliding scale between... Uh, shy and outgoing and uh, wild ego tremendous insecurity it's just like a seesaw
1: (laughs) yeah that's an interesting one to ponder what's it like for you because you've said earlier on in this conversation that you're still basically just kind of doing your hobby and yes. it's create this wonderful life for you and sure it's technically work because there's schedules and obligations things you have to fulfill but really it's just you you know engaging in a hobby that you love yes which, it, which i think is everyone's dream really to be able to do a job like that i certainly feel i've got a huge element of that in my life now yes um if you read the press on yourself it will consistently say things like greatest record producer of all time, you know, one of the most influential people on the planet, or whatever kinds of things that society has put onto you. So, how do you deal with that? Let's say you're about to go somewhere, you're introduced like that. It's in, it's intriguing for me. How do you? What happens in your mind when you hear that?
0: I, I just think it's all like a funny story. You know, yeah. I I know that I know I'm the same person I've always been. It's fascinating to know that that's the perception. It's fascinating that some of it may be true, some of it may not be true. It's all just it's just interesting. It's all interesting. Yeah. It's like wow, can you believe that? It it obviously when someone says something really good about me, on the one hand, it's like oh, I'm glad they think that, and that makes me uncomfortable. Both of those yeah. feelings, those feelings come up. Um. And it usually feels like I'd like that to get out of the way so that we could engage with whatever. Because it seems like it's not important to me. It's the same. It's the reason the book doesn't tell any stories about my life or any of the artists I work with. It's a distraction from this, from the material. And my interest in life is in the material, not in the stories about it or the sensational nature of it. I I like the... um, I like to close my eyes and listen to the music. I like to um, engage in a conversation and he, yeah. you know it, meet somebody as who they are. It's yeah. a very interesting thing that some people—the idea of this putting on a performance or a facade—it's um, it creates a real distortion in the reality field. It's like if you're in a relationship with someone and uh, you lie to them or they lie to you. It's like, are you even really together? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, all we have is this shared understanding of reality. Yeah. And if we can't talk about the same reality, are we even, do we even, do we know each other at all? Are we even in the same place? You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it's one of us is in a, one of us is believing something that the other person knows is not true. And it's like, we're not, we're in two different realms.
2: Yeah.
1: It's funny that a lot of people, when they meet a long-term partner, the first part, or certainly the early parts of the relationship is often facilitated by alcohol. Yeah. And if we think about what alcohol does to us and how it changes us and our behaviors and our patterns and our, you know, those insecurities can be dampened. So it's interesting that many people bond as a version of themselves who they, they simply are not. Yes. Although
0: it may be because it lets down in inhibitions. Yeah. I don't drink, first of all, but I will say because uh, alcohol lowers inhibitions, somebody might say something that they would hold back That's true. in polite company.
2: Nothing's
1: true in the extremes, hey? It's, no, it's hard. it's hard to know. It's hard, it's hard to, to know.
0: know. Hopefully, also, if someone meditates, that might be the case. They might be real. You know, they might be real.
1: Have you ever had a case where you felt the artists in your presence, because of the, the story around you, feel unable to share their truth? Oh, man, this, you know, Rick Rubin says the vocal needs changing there, or Rick Rubin says the guitar isn't quite right there. Like, have you ever, have you ever detected... You know, maybe some people pleasers or people who felt quite insecure, not trusting themselves in your presence because of this story, albeit a subjective story, because art is subjective. Um, ha- have you ever detected that? Uh,
0: it, it, it has probably happened. The nature of the process is it's a long process. Yeah. And like maybe when we first met each other, we had thoughts about each other, whatever it is. You yeah, yeah, first, yeah. But now that we've been talking for however long we've been talking, we're just talking it's yeah. like it's like that it's like whatever uh ideas anyone comes in with get dispelled very quickly when you just have a conversation and it just becomes people talking
2: yeah
1: this is one of the reasons i i do long form yeah uh and it's really interesting it really speaks to to some of the ideas in the book this idea that you make the art you want to make that's in your heart because as we're having this conversation, Rick, you know it's just over four and a half years since this show started, and uh, it's funny. Just before we started, you said, "Oh, you got in early," and I was like, "No." When I started podcasting, I thought I was late. Yes, uh, I thought, "Oh man, this has been going for years. You know, is there any room?" And you know, I, I I'd like to believe that there's always uh, space for quality content. Absolutely. I, you, I have to believe that. Absolutely. Um, otherwise, what's the point? Absolutely. Um, but at the time in the UK podcast industry, what they, what they would say is that you cannot or you should not do a podcast more than 40 minutes long. Yeah. The average commute time is 40 minutes. That's how long they should be. And my mm-hmm. first few were of that length. I just, something didn't, Sit right with me. And over the next few months, little by little, they started getting longer and Mm -hmm. longer and longer. Mm -hmm. And as they got longer, they got more and more popular, which I found was really, really interesting. And there wasn't that many people on this side of the Atlantic at that time doing long form. You know, there was, you know, like Tim Ferriss in America and Rich Roll. Mm -hmm. These guys were doing great long form there, but it wasn't really happening here. It's starting to change a little bit here, but still there's a bias towards shorter content, Mm -hmm. which I found interesting. But I think this speaks, I think, to the message you've tried to put out throughout your career that make the art that moves you. Mm -hmm. How do you see the selling of the art compared to the making of the art? And it's something you said before, Rick, about when snippets are taken to be sensationalist or whatever, then that can also be a conflict. I, I I really struggle with that with this show because the, the conversations are 90 minutes to two hours, maybe two and a half hours. But then we will then take clips to put on platforms like Instagram to raise awareness mm-hmm. Of hopefully a, a wonderful two-hour conversation. Yes, but it's almost in conflict with what we do because not really because that that's a commercial. Okay, it's a different it's a different. So it's thing. different. You're okay yeah. with that? Absolutely. Ethically, ethically, you think that's okay? Absolutely,
0: because again, it's if you want more, this is where the, the, you're you're doing that in service of this. You're yeah. doing the short form to draw attention to the long form, and the long form is the the thing that you're making that you're proud of. You, you're, any way that you can spread the information in a way that someone engages with the thing that you're doing, that seems okay. Yeah. It's a different thing. It's like, same, like any thoughts about how to release, or release a project, how to put it into the world, that starts after you've made it. You, know, you make it yeah. first. And it's just a whole new job that starts. After you've made the art, as good as it could be, then, okay, how are we going to turn people on to this? If you start thinking about that before, it's going to uh, undermine the the DNA of it. Yeah, it I- becomes a market, you know, the, the the project becomes a marketing, part of a marketing vehicle. Yeah. But if you make this beautiful thing first, and then, okay, it's done, I've signed off, the art's done, now how do we turn people on to it? And then yeah. it's a whole new really creative adventure in what is the different best ways, skill set
1: completely different completely <laughs> yeah. different yeah you said you've been writing this book for 7 years yeah or for over 7 years around 7 years yes the process and started 7 years ago i'm interested in your philosophy on deadlines did you have a deadline for this book i did not so the wider question is for me the wider question is how do you know when the art is finished and can be shared and released?
0: Something I learned through the work working on the book um, is this is something I'm not not good at or at least wasn't good at prior to the book. I'm not a great finisher. I'm a better experimenter than a finisher. so I can tinker away for a long time. Finishing is difficult. I like, I love when it's done, so I don't have to think about it anymore. I like that. I like when it's done. But getting to the point of saying it's done, that there are no more options, is a, you know, cl- closing options is not something that that's easy for me to do. What I came to realize is that there are different points in a project. And in, in the book, we talk about a seed phase where you're collecting ideas the experimentation phase where you're taking those seeds and seeing what they can turn into then there's a craft phase where after the seed germinates now we bring our own filter into it to see if we can um how can we shape this thing that the universe wants to give us and then the final phase is editing and all of the pieces of the finishing part and In the past, I looked at those all as part of this open-ended, it can go on forever. Yeah. And I came to realize the only parts, it's really the first, especially the first two, and sometimes some of the third step where we need time. But the finishing, the last piece of it, you can set a deadline there and it actually might be a good thing. And it's not, and again, I only learned that through working on the book and seeing where my method doesn't work as well as it could, Yeah. that we've already done all the tests. Now it's purely, there's no, there really isn't more experimentation to do. We've cracked the code. And once we've cracked the code, setting a time to get it out is can be a really, really helpful thing.
1: Yeah, I found that so interesting, right? Something I've thought a lot about, and. I guess I have a slightly different perspective, and mm. I, I wonder. There's no right or wrong. Also, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, I my, just wonder what you're yeah. you know you're someone who I, I have a huge amount of respect for. So yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, fascinated by your opinion on this. If I didn't have deadlines, there's no way I would have written five books in the past five years. Yes, no way. Yes, it just wouldn't have happened. Yes, and I have some author friends. One very successful author in America who, you know, four or five years, you know, he'd, he'd had a big hit book and, you know, it was changing people's lives. And for four or five years, he's oh, still working on my boat, I'm still working. I said, "Mate, honestly, I think you need a deadline because I've heard some of your early stuff three years ago. It was great um, because no, no, I'm not quite, I've still got to work through the ideas. And I get that. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but my view has become and I guess we all tell ourselves the story that works, that suits our life. So mm. maybe I'm telling myself a story here. But mm. I just see a piece of art as a snapshot in time. Yes. Because that's all that ever can be. So when I finish a manuscript, when I've, it's been through edits, I've tweaked it, I've gone away from it, I've come back to it, and it's the date to go to print. In which the publisher says we cannot make any more changes, even if you send us any some of those emails in a few weeks like you've done before. Yes, we're done now. Yes, I've learned to embrace that and go. No, that's part of the process. It can only ever be as good as I can make it at the point they press print. Yes, because my thoughts about these ideas don't just suddenly stop. Yes, so even when it's being printed, I'm seeing things in the world. I'm coming up with new ideas. Ah. Oh, had I, if I could change that manuscript, I would. Yes. And so, I I, I give a lot of authors comes to me for advice, and I I say, guys, listen, take the pressure off yourself. Right? It's a snapshot in time. True. So, what's your perspective on that, given what you just said? Because it's it's similar, but it's slightly different, isn't it?
0: It is. It's. Um. I I do believe that the works a snapshot in time. I think that's in some ways, without knowing that, it's nearly impossible to put anything out. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is true that it's a snapshot in time, and it's all essentially a diary. Um, I, I think it really depends on what it is that you're making. Like, yeah. Also, if you're, let's say you're a newspaper reporter, and the newspaper comes out every day, obviously the amount of time and attention that goes into each article is going to be different than if you're writing... The the one book you write a year, and if you write one book every five years, the time and attention that goes into that book is going to be different than the one that you write in one year. It just is the nature of time, and I don't think there's a a, a correct schedule for any of these things. Yeah. You know, you're on the schedule of this is what I can put out once a year, and this is the schedule I like, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's cert- certain arts, certain musicians who put out. An album every three to you know three or four years, and then there are some artists who put out an album every yeah. year. And one's not right, and one's not wrong. It's it's uh, and there's also a habit involved. I know um, with the artists that I work on, I've worked with for a long time. We tend to overwrite. I, I like this process of um, like, for example, with the the Chili Peppers, if there are going to be uh, twelve songs on an album, we might record. 30 or 35 songs. We might mm. finish 35 songs to have 12 on an album. So every album we put out in some ways is a greatest hits of three albums yeah. put into one. And that's just a habit I got into of, of a, and and not all artists will go, you know, not all artists are up for that. Some artists, you know, write eight songs mm. and think, okay, maybe I need one more to be done. And that's all they're willing to do. So it really depends on, it depends on the artist. And again, there's no right or wrong. Yeah, it's there's like, no... these are just different ways of approaching it. Yeah. There is, it... is there. Is, I do believe that the more you have to choose from, chances are it'll be better. Yeah. I think, you know, if it, there's who's to say that the first five songs you write are going to be better than the last five of 20. Yeah. I don't know. We don't know. And we won't know that till we get to the 20.
1: Yeah, because in the moment, you think those first five are the best five. Absolutely. You think, oh man, these are awesome. They're definitely know. going on the album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's hard to say.
0: It's really hard to say. Yeah.
1: I remember um, an interview Bono gave in the 90s about the pop album. Mm-hmm. And I think this illustrates the point beautifully for good or for worse, potentially. But he said... Words to the effect of, and you may know this better than than me, being so close to the music industry, like being in the industry. But mm. you know, as a as a avenue music fan, I would consume CDs, music, read interviews, buy bootlegs, everything. So I would the bands I liked, I knew everything about them. Um, Bono said that Pop wasn't finished when they put it out. The problem mm. was that they had a, a sold out stadium tour across the world, but the Pop Stadium Tour. So. They just had to put the album out as good as they could make it at that time. Yes. And over the first 12 months on tour, he says these songs evolved mm-hmm. hugely to the point, I think, where had they recorded it or had they finished the album a year later, it would have been a different album. Yes. And I think that it's funny how back then I wasn't um I wasn't a doctor, I wasn't a podcast host, I wasn't an author. Something about that stuck in my brain mm-hmm. from the nineties. Oh. Oh, there was a deadline, but it wasn't quite ready. And I think I have thought about that interview so much over the past years as I've gone into this now public-facing creative career as a podcaster and as an author. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that has also helped me realize or come to the conclusion that it's only ever a snapshot in time.
0: Yes. I've heard a different version of that story that the album was actually better earlier. Oh, wow. And that they went past it and that there were times that there were like rough mixes of the album that were much better than the album. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's just interesting. It's interesting even for the same album. Was it too early? Was
1: it too late? Who knows? And I guess you presumably will have been in that position before. Was it was it better before we started faffing around and chasing things? Was it better 3 weeks ago?
0: I'm really into this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh I never assume that because we work on it longer it's getting better. Mm-hmm. longer does not make it better
1: same with writing yeah you could sometimes go i have absolutely. it oh you my go god go i've, I've it. messed it up now i've tried to elongate that point yes and that's where collaboration comes in it's absolutely. like hey it's
0: better before absolutely and also we can even do it with ourselves because i always refer back like um there'll be a moment when i feel like we have something like er- early in the process of like this this is the clue of what we're gonna you know, like this—the yeah. the seed that we love, the the demo, the yeah, uh, yeah. it might even be a snippet of just uh, the way uh, the feel of a certain piece of music, or it could be a tiny little fragment. But this fragment is the reason we're going to go on this journey. I always refer back to that fragment later on and say, "Are we as good as the fragment? Are we better than the fragment? Are we worse than the fragment?" Because if it's It's fine to be different than The Fragment, but if it's not at least as good as The Fragment,
1: it's all been a waste of time. That must be really hard.
0: Yeah, well, I'll give you a a specific example. The first album I put out with Johnny Cash was essentially Johnny Cash in my living room playing me songs on a guitar. That was not the intention for that album. Mm -hmm. The original intention was those were, we were figuring out what songs to do He was demonstrating the songs for me. And then we went to different studios with different bands and tried recording the songs in different ways. And none of them were as interesting as what he played in the living room for me. And that's what ended up being the album. For many people, because they went to the issue and expense of going into the studio with musicians, the studio version would be the album. In our case, it's like, what's the best of what we have? Well, actually, that original homemade yeah. demo was more interesting than the produced version yeah. so we put out the homemade demo version
1: is it possible for that to be a perfect album
0: i don't know there, there are some that when i listen to them they feel perfect to me and and when i say perfect it's like perfect in it's with all of its imperfections like perfect for what it is yeah. You know, for me, when I listen to the White album, it feels like I wouldn't change anything. You know, I mean, not that I could, but that when I listen to it, it's like,
2: yeah,
0: that's how that goes. Is it D'Angelo album called Voodoo that I love. I wish I made that album. It's a beautiful album, and that one, when I listen to it, it's like, there's nothing else like that. It's so good. Yeah, there, uh love forever changes is one that um, when I listen to it, it's. Uh, it's a unique, one of a kind album. No one made an album before it or after it like it, and it's magnificent. Yeah.
1: So interesting you said to you. Yeah, it's only to me. Exactly. It, it's it only can only me. ever be. No, there's a, and
0: it's no there's no and I'm sure that there are many fans of, you know, their favorite artists made albums that are that in their mind are perfect and it's great. Yeah. It's great. It's yeah. only, it, we all have our own stories. You know, it's nothing, nothing is true. <laughs> it's how we perceive it.
1: I've struggled with perfectionism a lot of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've, again, I, I I keep bringing up how this podcast has changed my life. Mm-hmm. One of the things it's done that I haven't mentioned so far is it's helped me to embrace imperfection. yes. Because on these long form conversations, it's not about perfection. Actually, if there's a stumble, if you don't quite get your words out the right way, if someone comes in with coffee, it's, I think that's the vibe, you know, it's the, I think, I think podcasts are the modern day campfire in a a massive way. I think that's why these long form conversations are taking off all around the world. People are feeling a deep sense of connection. I remember when I was at university at Edinburgh, where I was at medical school, I Played in a band that's kind of a huge focus for me in in Edinburgh. And we were in the studio near Edinburgh Airport called Split Level. And, you know, it was really exciting for us because it was the first time we'd been in a recording studio, you know. So, you know, you're a young band trying to make your way, and oh, this is a studio. And again, I look back now and think, I would bring perform, oh, I mean, it's in the studio. So it's got to be a certain way, Mm -hmm. which. Again, it's, I didn't realize at the time, actually, but it's taking you out of authenticity and into a, some sort of performance aspect, which yes. I thought I needed to do. But I remember there was, a, there was a song I wrote called Tell Me Why, and we went in there all weekend. I must have recorded the vocal track 30 or 40 times. Oh, no, it's not quite right, not quite right. And then with the engineer, we went through line by line Picking the perfect line and the finished version or that iteration probably had 20 different takes in it. Each line perfect in its own right. You play it afterwards, sounded awful. Mm. And I was like, I don't get it. I don't get there's 20 perfect lines in there, but the soul was missing. There was just something. So I think I didn't realize it at the time. I can articulate it now looking back, but is that something you've seen happen in the studio before? Is that something you still experience?
0: Absolutely. And we'll, you know, we'll often do multiple vocal takes and put them together. And sometimes it's not about looking for perfection. Yeah. It's looking for the thing that interests you. You know, you're, you're listening for which lines sound interesting and which ones work best together more than is each one perfect. Mm-hmm. But there are lots. There are lots of records where, um, lots of recordings where every line is perfect and they work. You know, if we listen, to, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire records are fairly perfect and they're magnificent. Yeah. <laughs> so again, there's no right or wrong.
1: There's no right or wrong. No, uh, for sure. I mean, music has a way of just doing something inside to people that I think very few other art forms can do. Um. Uh, and I guess we all experience it differently. I've always like I've always felt I I viscerally can feel certain things in music. I know you've worked with Chad Smith on many occasions of yes. his Chili Peppers. Yes. He's one of my favorite drummers. And for me, when I hear, I've always felt this like Chad can play what is seemingly a 4-4 four, four rock beat. But I feel like he's talking to me. Yes through that, any other drummer or drummers I know would play it, it would just sound like a very metronomic, um, static, 4-4 rock beat. Yes, But Chad seems to bring it alive as if those drums are talking to me, like he's having a conversation with me. And I remember when I saw them live in Manchester a few years ago, it was just incredible how, I don't know, what is it? You've worked with him, what do you think it is? I mean... D- it,
0: it, it's unbelievable. And it's true with the are the musicians who who just transcend their instruments. He's one of those people where it, it what he's what he's playing doesn't have to draw attention to itself. Yeah. He can play the simplest thing, yet you can feel it's different than the yeah. way anyone else plays it. And it's and it 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 just lives in a different way. It's true with Uh, guitar players. true with musicians. It's true with great bands. What makes a band great usually is the way each of the members feel the music, the differences between each of the way the members feel the music. Like in in Metallica, the drums push ahead of the guitars. In ACDC, the drums lag behind the guitars. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the sound of those bands. It's it's the imperfection. That's what makes it sound. That that the tension created by the way each musician interprets the music and the different timings combined together to make this sound that's bigger than everybody playing it exactly, precisely, correctly.
2: Yeah.
1: I think there's a lesson in that for all of us in our relationships and in, in our lives in, in so many ways. Rick, you've been public about your struggles with depression mm-hmm. in the past. I wonder if you could sort of talk us through what happened. One of the key elements of that for me is that you have said that you feel more grounded now than you did before you suffered from depression. Yes.
0: Before I suffered depression, I felt more like um, a sense of um, this will sound funny, but I guess the best way to say it is like a superhuman feeling of like nothing, nothing, um, nothing could affect me. And once something affected me, It's much more, I would say now I'm more grounded and rooted in reality, where before I might have been more, um, I don't know the right word for it. Yeah, I can't think of the right word, but just not... um, I wasn't able to empathize as much with other people's problems before because it didn't seem to me like it was possible. Like I didn't have an understanding mm. of what difficulties felt like because it, it, I was apart from it. Yeah. And when I say that, I still had difficulties, but but they were manageable. Depression is different than regular difficulties. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, the, the, there's a difference between not being able to accomplish something you want and feeling hopeless. They're two different things. Or feeling so bad and not understanding why. You know, it doesn't... The the thing about depression that's so crippling is that it doesn't make sense. Uh, It's not rooted in outward... My experience of it, it wasn't rooted in what was going on in my world. Yeah. It was just something... um, Triggered this emotional response that I'd never had before. And I felt like I was dying. It was a wild
1: experience and it lasted a long time. It was a comment, wasn't it? Made by someone. Yeah, it
0: was just a comment. And it was a comment that anyone else heard the comment in my position would have been like, oh, okay, we'll deal with it when we get back. But for some reason, it was, um, it touched a nerve of vulnerability that had never been touched in me before.
1: Was it that? I guess as an adult, you'd had huge amounts of success in music right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Or was it to do with, I don't know elements of your childhood? Was it happy, peaceful? Was it, did it go without? I think you've said once before that you hadn't really had to overcome many obstacles. So when that happened, you had no tools to deal with it.
0: That's exactly right. That's so, exactly what it was. I, I, I had, so was it an uh, idyllic childhood? Absolutely. I was an only child. I was... Uh, I would say I w- I was spoiled although I didn't I wouldn't I don't know that I necessarily acted spoiled but I didn't um my wants were met yeah. in childhood and and then had great success before I even knew that I was started a career so I wasn't prepared for any type of, um, it's, and I guess re, what it really had to do with s- the sense of support. So I always had the sense that my parents supported me in anything that I wanted to do. That's the way they raised me. It was like, you're great. You could do anything and we will support you to the end of time. Yeah. And then when I had success in music, the powers that be in music when you're successful are very supportive. <laughs> yeah. So I had this ramp of support. And then when I turned 33, um, someone questioned it for the first time. And again, it was minor. It worked out fi- It actually ended up in a better place than it would have been had it not happened. It was all fine. But I just didn't have the, I didn't know how to deal with it. And without even knowing what was happening, because I didn't really know what depression was. Yeah. I didn't know what a panic attack was. I just knew that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was dying. It was a
1: wild, wild experience. And did you at the time know with your rational mind, this is nothing? No. So it wasn't that you knew cognitively, this is nothing, I shouldn't be reacting like this, but I am. You just didn't know. Did you feel out of control? Absolutely.
0: But, but not in a way, it, I felt out of control in a way that I didn't understand. I didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. It, none of it made sense. The way my body was reacting didn't make sense. Felt like I had no control of myself. I had no control because again, I can't say that what what the comment was anything that upset me in the moment. It wasn't like that. It was more of just a. It was like a question mark, but somehow it like planted a seed in me, or or like um. It's like it let the air out of my balloon. Yeah. That's what it felt like.
1: Do you still consider yourself someone who suffers with depression? I would say I,
0: I can be moody. I, I don't. I, I've not really felt true depression in some time, although I've had two big bouts of it in my life. That that first one, and then it happened again years later. Um, not as bad the second time as the first time, and not since. And none since changing my schedule. Being in the sun, changing my diet, all of those things really have helped.
1: Oh wow. So since obviously we, we talked about it earlier on in this conversation, since you were with Phil, since you lost your weight, you had the vitality, change your diet, yes. see natural lights. Yes. Then you haven't had any since then.
0: No. I will say I still can be moody for sure. Yeah. But never like I don't I don't think that
1: I crash the way I did. You're well known for doing sauna and cold plunge. Yes. Uh, I had the podcast you did with Tim Ferriss a few years back in the sauna. Was that in your house?
0: It was. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I... It was pretty awesome listening to it. I, I was thinking, how how is no one burning themselves here? Or It was really, it, it was difficult. Um, it was difficult. And he
0: had it where we were holding the mics, which was insane. So we had the mics wrapped in towels to be able to hold them. And every on occasion, you'd touch the metal and you'd know, burn your hand.
1: I mean, first of all, why did you elect to do that podcast with Tim? Yeah,
0: it was my idea. It was It was actually my condition for doing the podcast was, I'll do it if we do it in the sauna. And the reason was, um, at that point in time, I hadn't done very many interviews ever, yeah. And um, I had never done a long form interview. And I thought to take away any apprehensions that I have, one of the things that we, uh, our friends, uh, my friend Gabby Reese, the oh, volleyball yeah, player, yeah, yeah, she calls it the truth box. And the, we noticed over time from doing sauna altogether that the conversations in the sauna get really good and really real. And I think any um, any pr- any protection you have up goes away in the sauna to protect yourself from the heat. So you're so focused on the discomfort of the heat that what you say is uh, very pure. The trick box. I yeah, that. and I thought, if I do this with you, to, and, I, and I met him, but I didn't really know him very well then. I said, let's do it in the sauna because I know the conversation will be really real. Yeah. So let's do that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you should have said we could have turned the air conditioning off at the start. It's pretty but hot, it's, actually. It's pretty hot. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, and why do you use sauna and cold plunge? Or Like, when did you bring that into your life? Why did you bring it in? And I guess, what kind of impact has it had? Started
0: in probably could be as much as ten years ago now.
1: After you suffered with depression for the first time,
0: much after, long after.
1: But was this part of the process of you on this health journey? Trying to yes, this is after I started
0: training. Yeah, Um, I'd lost the weight. I started training and got invited into a a sauna with some sports friends of mine, and they we would go in the sauna, and it's in the middle of winter. And jump into the ocean after, and I remember being terrified of the whole thing, mm-hmm. and doing it, and absolutely loving it from the very first time I did it, and found that through these repeated, you know, four rounds of very hot sauna and very cold, um, it had an it had a euphoric effect. I, I would say I never felt better in my life. Than at the end of a session of sauna and ice. Best mood I've ever been in my life. And also, if there were any, if I had any concerns in life, anything I was worried about, that all went away in the sauna for sure. Nothing after, once you get into a practice of getting into an ice bath on a regular basis, nothing else in your life will be a challenge.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm, you know, I I I hear about what happens at Laird's pool. Yeah. And you know, I'd love to chat to Laird at some point or Gabby. Yeah, I that'd find be it great. So fascinating what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Something that actually it as we record this, it's not it's not been released publicly yet. Um there's a chap called Irwin LaCour. Yeah. Um, move Nat guy. Yeah. He has got a new breath work uh, course. I think it's called breath hold work meditation. Mm-hmm. And he was running them as the live four week courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did about four or five of those over a few months. Of feedback was incredible. I did one of them and he's gonna launch it online Fantastic. shortly. It is unbelievable. Now I've done loads of breathwork stuff yes. in the past. What is different about this? Like just to just to give a top line overview. I went in, you were meant to do two sessions a week for four weeks with with Irwin on. And first session, he asked you to take a, you know, without any warning, take a you know, full breath in and hold your breath. And I think I could, I think I was actually in Sweden for the first session. I was there. Uh, one of my books had just come out there. I just landed, got to the hotel. I could just do a minute mm-hmm. for breath hold. Four weeks later, and I didn't even do both sessions twice a week. I held my breath for four minutes, 30. Incredible in four weeks. Incredible. And that was absolutely not a physiological adaptation. Mm. It was all the mind. Wow. And and what? why I feel this practice is so phenomenal, a bit like what you just said about the colds. Yes. Basically, you get to the point where your body is screaming for you to take a breath. Yes. Which is one of the most primal, um, you know, signals for survival. Yes. In that moment, he helps you learn how to quieten your mind. Mm-hmm. So it's not about holding on, it's actually, can you get still? Can you get quiet? Can you almost get into a deep meditative state? And then you mm-hmm. think you need a breathe, you've still got another minute to go, mm-hmm. minute and a half. And I do many things for my well-being, but I, I reckon you would love this. It course. sounds fantastic. It's and I having done loads of breathwork courses, this is very different. Mm-hmm. And it's been life changing. That's like I great. feel, if you can control your mind when your body's yeah. screaming, you feel empowered. You feel empowered anywhere. Yeah. You think, oh, the train's there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, they're shouting at me. Okay, yeah. no worries. Yeah. Uh, so, is that, would you say the cold's an element of that?
0: Absolutely, mental toughness.
1: Yeah. mental toughness,
0: and being able to stay in it is purely mental. Tough. It's not has nothing to do with
1: the physical. Yeah. it's all mental. It's all mental. Yeah. Out of all the things that you've done for your health and well being over the years, which are the most important ones, would you say, for you?
0: I would say um, eating animal protein, sleeping on a cold bed. So that's either uh, the Sleep 8 or the Chili Pad, either either one of those, or the Uller. Th- those yeah. are the choices. And sauna and ice. And, and I suppose uh, whatever physical practice yeah. I'm doing. And meditation, th- that's another key
2: yeah Those the basics the, which yeah, people have known for years that's, right that's it that's yeah. it
0: yeah fascinating. and i think actually the diet the, the reason i i say diet first is if you exercise and don't diet it seems to mean practically nothing and if you diet and add exercise it 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 multiplies it's like it, it, ch- it changes everything so i would say it's 90%. It's 90% diet, 10% exercise. But if you do the 10% exercise, you get 50% of the bonus. <laughs> do you know? It's yeah. like, it's, it's all out of, it, the numbers don't make sense. Yeah. The numbers don't make sense. It's non-linear, isn't it? No, no, no. But the, I would say diet first, then exercise, and then the the extra bonus things. But sleeping on cold is really profound, really profound. Have you experimented
1: at all? I have actually I've tried eight sleep once as well. No. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, when you have that cold bed. And what so I love amazing. that you can alter for your partner as well. So Absolutely. different temperature.
0: And you can sleep with a blanket and be cozy. Yeah. And still keep your body cool. Um yeah, I sleep much deeper on a cold
1: bed and do I you like that. Bring anything with you when you're traveling to try and replicate that? No. Uh,
0: well, I in the different places in the world, I have houses in different places and I, I have cold sleeping in all the places that I live. But on this trip, I don't have it, and it's and my sleep is
1: falling apart. There you go. Yeah. To the point where you might bring something with you next time. I don't you'd... know. It's big to bring. It's, it's like I have to bring. figure out a
0: way. Yeah. I have to figure out a way. I'm hoping it gets to the point where it's popular enough where will, they'll just be everywhere. Yeah. I'm sure it will soon. Yeah. Um. It'd be nice, like a biohacking hotel that has only red lights at night. And uh, oh
1: man, the, the the lights in hotels at nights—the yeah. bane of many people's existence—the yeah. bright lights. Could I ask you a bit of advice? Sure. Almost feel a bit cheeky asking, but I guess it's not in private. It's while the microphones fine. are running. That's fine. You know, if someone had told me when I was fourteen, I'd be sitting face to face with you, the the, the, the teenage wrong and probably wouldn't have believed it. Mm-hmm. And over the past few years, I've realised that. Um, I wrote a section in my last book about worshiping the wrong heroes. That this idea of hero worship is fundamentally flawed. It's an idea I'm I'm kind of really working on at the moment. Maybe for my next book. I think it's problematic because we only see one element of these so-called heroes. Yes. You know we, you know we think we want to play golf like Tiger Woods, but if you want to play golf like Tiger, you also probably have to have the broken marriage, the the addiction, the Public humiliation, all, all all those things come with it, not yes. just the, the little bit you want. So, but I've I've sort of let go of a lot of that over the past few years. And having met a lot of high profile and famous people and realizing that everyone's got the same issues yes. and everyone's as humans. We're everyone's all human. a human. Yes. It kind of helps you with that and Absolutely. and stop and stop elevating people. But I for much of my life wanted to be a musician. So um I think even at third year at uni, I took a year out to do immunology and I came back at Christmas. I told my mum and dad, I am I said, I'm quizzing. I'm going on the road with the bands. And I don't think I really meant it. I think I was trying to get a reaction and oh boy, I got a reaction <laughs> uh, certainly from my dad's yes. and my mum managed to uh, keep the peace and said, why don't you just finish your immunology degree? Then you can go, you know, she was just trying to store me. And, um, huge part of my life in Edinburgh was playing in bands uh, and writing. And, you know, I remember when I left Edinburgh, I came back to Manchester, I recorded my, like, a solo EP. And, you know, there's a great radio station called XFM, one of the singles, ended up being single of the week. So, you know, low-grade elements of, you know, in Inverse commas, success, but no record deal, nothing like that. And mm-hmm. um, I actually don't believe that would have been the right career for me anyway. I feel that I have found my true calling over the last six or seven years you know pretty much since my dad died and I've looked at my life and now what I do in medicine with my podcast with my books I feel is a form of art and creativity that allows me to use the skills and practices I've learned to share with people which helps me and also helps them but over the last few years uh, Rick it's been niggling away at me that there's a part of me which is a songwriter. Yes. That is unexpressed. Yes. And I think it's really become clear over the last two weeks because, as part of my research for this conversation, I've been delving into albums I haven't heard in years mm-hmm. Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Wildflowers. Uh, it's just been such a joy. And I'm feeling that visceral connection again to music. But the problem, Rick, in my head, and I guess I'm asking you as an invisible, now a visible life coach, Mm -hmm. I feel I've changed since I used to write songs. I think when I used to write songs, I was very derivative. I Mm -hmm. think I was trying to be someone. You know, when I was 13 or 14, I wanted to be John Bon Jovi. That's all I wanted to be. Like I literally wanted to be him. And I think some of my intonations, you know, like many British people, we put on an American accent when singing because I don't know why is it softer is it less harsh and now one because I've recently have been picking up the guitar again I've got some verses going I've got some things going and I'm like that's pretty good and but I I feel that I've got old patternings in my voice that I don't feel it authentically me so I have a real struggle mm-hmm. through my podcasting and uh literary career yes I feel, particularly in my last book, I found my voice and who I am, Yes. but I don't feel, and again, I'm probably being harsh on myself, but I don't feel that my singing voice is in the same place. If an artist came to you with this sort of quandary, uh, what might you say to them?
0: I would say if you found your writing voice on your fifth book, we can learn from that. So it sounds like by the time you get to your fifth album, you'll find your voice vocally, and it's not gonna happen without doing the work. So, so uh, I would suggest that you write and record as much as you can all of the time. And instead of thinking of it as, um, think of it as a hobby. Just think my hobby is I'm gonna write and record songs. And then there'll come a time through that process where you look back and go, hmm. I think this batch is ready to share with people. Look, luckily, you're, you're, not, um, you're not obligated to share anything because you're sharing the podcast and you're sharing the yeah. books and you're sharing your medical practice. So it truly can be a personal hobby until it, until it grows into something more than that, which it will naturally do by itself, but it won't happen without doing the work. And it's only going to be the work that's going to make it happen.
2: Yeah.
1: And do you think that element we were talking about before about beware of the assumption that the way you work is the best way simply because it's the way you've done it. I'm thinking like, should I, again, is this procrastination? Should I get a different guitar, which won't maybe lead me to those old patterns? Should I, instead of the usual chords I would use to Mm -hmm. songwrite, do I put a capo halfway up and actually try and shake things up? Try it all. Try, try all of that.
0: Try writing a song on the piano. Try doing all those things. Yeah. See what happens. Try, uh, f- go go on a service that has beats and, you know, go on SoundCloud yeah. and find a beat you like and write to that beat. So totally shake it up completely. Try, try things. See, f- surprise yourself with
1: what works for you. I, I just, I love that advice. And um It's it's advice that I literally will put into practice immediately. Beautiful. And um,
0: you'll definitely learn through the you know you'll learn both through successful and failed experiments. Like each one will get you closer to where you're going, and it's it's impossible to know until you try as many things as you can try, and you'll be surprised, and you'll say, "Oh, these these three things are all kind of good. I've never done them these way before." Or the old way is still the best, or you you won't know. There's no way to know. Um, And you also find out what's most fun, like what what part of the discovery process is most exciting to you. And that might work its way into it sounding a particular way. If you're engaging in it in a way that um, sparks something new in you out of the excitement of the way that it's happening.
1: Yeah so much to think about. It's, it's really something that I just can't shake at the moment. And I feel, I, mean, I don't regret not playing as much for the last six or seven years. Yes, uh, I've still got with my band, a covers band in Chamonix in France. And we'll go and play two or three gigs every winter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but they're covers, you know, and that's nothing wrong with that. People no, are having a good time. We enjoy playing, but yes. I do feel, do you feel there's a limit to creativity? Um I, I what I mean by that is, I have told myself over the past few years, or oh, wrong! And you're using up your creative energy," and I know this as I say it. So I, I guess I'm bringing it out into the open. No. To yeah, in my books and my podcast, so I don't have much left no. for songwriting. No, no, no,
0: no. You may not. You may run out of energy, but not creativity. You know, you may be too tired, but that's all. Not, not the. In some ways. The more you engage in in different creative practices, the better they all get. Yeah. They all get better. The thing that taps out first is just energy. You know, you run out of steam, yeah. but not not out of ideas or creative spirit. That that's uh, it's
1: eternal and forever. <laughs> I feel very honored that I've had uh, some visible life coach advice from you about that. I will. Be sure to let you know how it goes. Yeah, I'm excited to hear. Um, I've said it enough times, but I'll say it again, Rick. This this is it's just wonderful, this book. I I treasure it so, so much. Uh, I've got this early copy on, on a, a bound, you know, printed out paper all my scribbles in, but the actual copy is just beautiful. Um, you got no quotes on the book. No. And uh, you were, you were saying just before we started recording... That, that was intentional.
0: It was intentional from me and I was happy that the uh, publishers went along with my wish. Um, most books have quotes on them and quotes are a, a marketing tool and it seems like if you put uh, if you put marketing information on, a, on something it makes it a product and I don't really think of it as a product. so yeah, that was the,
1: the thought many different chapters in this book are there any that come to mind as ones that yeah that's the one that's the one that really helped me or help you you know
0: no i'm i'm continually surprised by it as i've had to read it to give you know either to read it to understand the editor's notes or read it to give my notes of things that i think can be improved I'm surprised by so much of the information in the book and it's not, um, it doesn't live in the front of my mind. So it's, uh, it came through a lot of um, searching and so much of the information is intuitive. Yet, when I read it, it's like, oh yeah, it is like that. You know, like that's thats my relationship to it is, it's... Um, It's, it's a hard thing to describe. It's, an, it, it, the, it's the best version of seven years of thought that's
2: not there now. Yeah.
1: Rick, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Um, I'm drawn back to the intro again. Nothing in this book is known to be true. It's a reflection of what I've noticed, not facts so much as thoughts. It is going to help. So many people. It, it, it really is. It certainly helped this man already wow. in the past two weeks. So thank you for that. Amazing. Um, thank you for, first and foremost, making the art that moved you. Yes. That's a key lesson for me. And um, in doing so, you've also helped to move the lives of many people. This podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves. Yes we get more out of our life. I think your own physical transformation story perfectly demonstrates that. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of this conversation, right at the end of what I hope won't be the last conversation we have, mm. do you have any final thoughts or ideas to share with people? There's a lot of people struggling in the world. A lot of people They feel stuck in their jobs and their relationships. A lot of people think, oh, art. Yeah, but, you know, I did that at school. I don't have time for art. You know, I've got real adult responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Have you got any kind of final words that you'd like to share with people? Yeah,
0: I would say that we, we are in control of our own lives. We often don't realize we're in control, but we're in control of our own lives and we can make different choices. And if the things in our life are not bringing us joy and happiness, if our career that we've devoted all of our lives to isn't bringing us joy, and we can change them. If we decide our relationship is not the right relationship, we don't have to suffer in that relationship. We we have our own power, and we can make a change, and it takes courage um, but it's in everyone's best interest for us to take care of ourselves, to be in a to be in a relationship or in a job where you're phoning it in because you think it's your responsibility to do the job, there's probably someone who would do that job with passion and bring more to it than you are. In your relationship, if you're if you were if you've fallen out of love and you're going through the motions, you're not doing anyone any favors. It's not real. And um and if you feel depressed and you can't manage the life you're in, you can go move to another part of the world. You can live on a beach. You know, you can you can there's so many options available to us that we don't, you know, we're stuck in our small story of who we are and what our lives are and it's all a choice. And we have the power to change it. Anything, anything in our lives that that um, doesn't give us joy, we can change, and we can find the version that that suits us. And and it's not and it's not only in service to us. It's ultimately what's best for everyone. You know, when you're on an airplane, and they say if the plane's going to go down, these. Uh, Masks are going to fall down. Put your mask on first before you put on your child's or anyone else's, Mm -hmm. which is counterintuitive. We always think we take care of our children first. But if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone else. So I would say primarily take care of yourself first. If you want to save the world, save yourself and then save your immediate family and then save your immediate uh, neighborhood and then save... Your, you know your um, your town S- start with small circles and build out do you know meta meditation the yeah. meta meditation is uh, may I be filled with loving kindness, may I be well, may I be peaceful in it ease, may I be happy We repeat these four phrases over and over again and for the first year or so of doing it it's may I. And then after a year of may I, We've built up a strong enough charge to say, may we, and the we might be your immediate family first. And you do that for another year and build up the power in that unit. And then you can extend it. And by the fifth year, you can do it for the planet, but you can't do it for the planet first because there's no built up charge. So do what's necessary to take care of yourself, build yourself up, have the strongest charge possible, that you could then share and make the
1: world a better place. Brilliant advice. Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday Five. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect and I have to say in a world of endless emails it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving so if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash friday5 Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behaviour change and movement, weight loss and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember you are the architect of your own health making lifestyle changes is always worth it because when you feel better you live more